looking tonight at another one of the Psalms, we look at Psalm 143. There have been uh, certain labels that have been historically associated with various groups of Old Testament Psalms, and this Psalm, Psalm 143, has been part of a group of seven Psalms that have been designated together as penitential Psalms. And they're given that, that title because within the content of each of the Psalms, it's found a prominent theme of confession of guilt or sin as part of the psalmist's words. This particular psalm is also one of a smaller group of four psalms that Martin Luther had called the Pauline Psalms. Pauline because Luther saw in them a correspondence with the Apostle Paul's teaching about the unrighteousness of men and women and their need for a righteousness received from God by faith apart from human works. So as we read this 143rd Psalm together, let's read it with an awareness that we maybe should be on the lookout for those two things. First, for the evidence of David's own confession, and second, for evidences that God bestows a righteousness by faith and not by human works. And one more thing, one more thing in regard to the reading of this Psalm tonight. After the sixth verse, there is a word that we've encountered in the Psalms before. It's that word, Selah. In the past, I've mentioned that it's a word with a meaning that in many ways has escaped the modern reader of the Scriptures. In our age, we have been left without a clear translation of the word into English. Thus, you see it as transliterated from the Hebrew. And we don't have any exact knowledge as to what the original word might have been intended to convey. Yet even having said that, the consensus of many scholars is that the word likely is an instruction to pause for a moment and to meditate on what has just been read. And so for tonight, rather than read the word Selah, I'll do just that. I'll pause for a minute. Pause for a moment in our reading for just a brief, silent meditation on the word before I go on. So I've given you some instructions about what we might be looking for in the psalm, some indication of the manner in which I'll read the psalm tonight. And with all that said, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and then actually do the reading. So let's pray first. Father, as we, we come to this psalm tonight, as we come to this psalm that was penned for us by David, we ask that you would teach us through it. And particularly tonight, Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to pray. We realize, Lord, that sometimes our minds wander in our prayers. Sometimes we need to be focused. And may we see in the words of David maybe uh, a pattern that would be like the pattern that your own son has taught us when, we, when he taught us to pray. And so, Lord, guide us through the psalm. Direct us through its words. Help us to understand what we should know of you, know about ourselves, and particularly how we should pray. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So it's Psalm 143, a psalm of David. David writes, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like 
like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. Thus, the reading of the word of God. Well, the first portion of this psalm that we consider tonight is really delineated in the first two verses. The first words of the psalm immediately identify the words of Paul as being a prayer. Hear my prayer, he says. And I think it's here in these first two verses where we truly do see what gives this psalm its penitential nature. In the second verse, David writes of how no one living is righteous before God. And of course, no one would include himself. So David is acknowledging his own sinfulness. And in the second verse, he asks of the Lord that he, God, would not enter into judgment in regard to himself, David, as God's servant. The first verses also include words requesting the mercy of God, pleading actually for the mercy of God. So what we have here at the beginning is David, the psalmist, acknowledging his sinfulness, realizing that his sin is worthy of the judgment of God, and then also asking that he would not receive the judgment he deserves. What he really wants is God's mercy. But then also, also in the middle of the confession and the plea for mercy, we also read at the end of verse 1, in your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Now, in many ways, David's prayer for mercy is so understandable. He needs God to answer him according to his mercy, not according to God's justice. But when David asks for God's faithfulness and his righteousness, the possibility at least exists that a prayer like that, if David would answer, or if God would answer David's prayer with faithfulness and righteousness, would mean actually David's destruction. After all, God had told the first man of all humanity. He had told Adam that man's disobedience, his sin, would lead to death. To answer a prayer, a prayer with faithfulness to his promise would mean David's doom. From a God who is perfect in righteousness and who cannot abide human unrighteousness, one might expect a holy wrath to be meted out by a holy God on unrighteous man. Of course, David is not asking for that. So it must be that his request for God's faithfulness and righteousness, it must be related to some other covenantal promise of God. And you might recall that in 2 Samuel, in the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, God had indeed made some covenantal promises to David. The Lord had told David that he, David, would be a prince over God's people, Israel. That God would cut off all of David's enemies from before him 
that he would make David's name great among the earth and give him rest from his enemies. And through David, the Lord would establish the throne of an everlasting kingdom. So hopefully with that background, it becomes clear that David is praying to the Lord and asking him to be faithful and righteous in regard to the covenantal promises such as those. And to do that, he will need God's mercy because without God's mercy, he could never really expect to receive the covenantal blessings of God because of his sin and because of his fallenness. Now let me also say that although not specifically mentioned in the psalm, it should now be equally clear to us that David needs Jesus Christ. David needs Jesus because for the faithfulness and righteousness of a God to all of his promises, for all of that to exist alongside his mercy, it requires God's just justice to still be dealt with. And it mercifully is dealt with. It's dealt with by God directing his wrath toward the sins of the unrighteousness of mankind upon his son to be mercifully borne by Jesus at the cross. So before we get very far at all in the psalm, we see the penitential nature of it. And we also see, I think, that we know why Luther now has called it Pauline. We see it because we do start to realize that the merciful forgiveness of our sins in light of mankind's unrighteousness cannot be merited by any one of us. And so our deliverance by God will be, uh, will re be required for unrighteous people to come to, to faith in Jesus Christ, to place our faith in a merciful Savior. And to just highlight the Pauline nature of the psalm a little more, when we read at the end of the, this, the second verse, for no one living is righteous before you. Well, that should remind us almost everything about almost everything that Paul has taught us in the first three chapters of Romans. In Romans 3, from verse 10 to the 18th verse, Paul quotes and he paraphrases from, from many Old Testament passages, including the Psalms, though not specifically this one. But he did that for the purpose of our all-knowing that no one living is righteous before God. So this Psalm really does sort of come into play. All humanity is under sin. The whole world is accountable to God. And all of us will need the mercy of God in Jesus Christ if we are to be spared from the effects of human sin. Now that's just two verses of the psalm, so maybe we should move on. When verse 2 gives way to verse 3, David starts next explaining his present circumstances. He does that through verse 4, and then going on through verse 6, he also contrasts that present condition with what he knows about God from history past. When David describes his present trials, he does so by lamenting over an enemy who pursues him. But the enemy, notice, is not named, nor is he particularly defined or the circumstance particularly defined. Sometimes the lack of specifics in a psalm like this actually benefit a people like us who read the psalm in days future to their composition. Because David's enemy is unidentified, we can more easily read the psalm and apply it to our own circumstances. The enemy that could be pursuing one of us might be an enemy physical or spiritual. It could be a person or a group. It could be the devil or temptation or some disease or some want or our own sinful desires. So the theme of this part of the psalm has a more universal application a universal application that is 
experience as a result of the vagueness in identifying the enemy. But while David is vague in regard to the identity of the enemy, he is not nearly so vague with the effects the enemy has had upon him. The enemy has made it so that David feels as if his life is crushed to the ground, as if he, David, is sitting in darkness, as if one long dead. His spirit is fainting within, and his heart is dismayed or appalled. We sense that the burden on David has been uh, afflict, that, that has been afflicted by the enemy of David has been so great that David is feeling if it, as if he is really near to death. But it's also right after that that David starts thinking about the past with his thoughts about the past being focused upon God's work. Now again, God's particular works are not so particularly defined. Any of us who think of God's work in days prior to David's life might be drawn to his mighty works of creation. Or we perhaps could be thinking about the exodus and the plagues and the Red Sea and God's deliverance of his people. We could think of Joshua and the way God halted the Jordan and brought the walls of Jericho tumbling down. But again, God's past works are not here defined and they need not be as restrictive as those great deeds. God works in individual lives as well. He works in individual lives as well as on the grand stage of the world. So David could more be thinking of the way in which he had remembered God's guidance or help or rescue in the past. Some of those types of things that many people in our present day do not even attribute to God. Providing food to eat or shelter from a storm or guidance in some minor dilemma. Maybe we should particularly see that David has particularly prayed by saying how he meditates on all the work that the Lord has done. And maybe we can learn from that when we have some difficulty we face from any enemy of any sort. It's good to reflect and to meditate and ponder all the work of God's hands as we pray. And then look at the sixth verse. Look at the sixth verse in light of what David has already prayed. He remembers the work of God, and that seems to prompt him all the more to stretch out his hands to God. David knows his trials. He perceives his enemies. But having considered God's work, David's thirst now is for the Lord. His soul thirsts for God like a thirsty man in a most parched land. So thus far in the psalm, we have a prayer confessing one's sin and asking for God's covenantal faithfulness, righteousness, and mercy. The prayer then addresses the existence of an enemy, physical or spiritual, that heavily weighs the body and soul down. And while in that state there is a reflection upon God that encourages the psalmist all the more to take his needs before his Lord. And that is what the psalmist then does next. From verse 7 to the end, verse 12, he brings some specific petitions before the Lord. But for now, let's just look at the ones we find in verses 7 through 10. And when we do that, let's, let's do it by dividing them into some categories. One of the things of which we become aware in this part of the psalm is that some of these petitions are requests that God deliver or rescue the psalmist. But notice how the requests for rescue parallel the words spoken about the oppression of the enemy. In verse 4, David had mentioned how his spirit 
was fainting within them. So in verse 7, when he prays for God's swift answer to his prayers, he mentioned again how his spirit is failing. His, his reason he needs this swift answer from God is because of that failing feeling. And then in the next petition, he also is asking for deliverance, but David specifically asks of God that God not hide his face. But when he asks that of God, he asks it lest he goes down to the pit. Now, going down to the pit is also reminiscent of what David prayed earlier in verse 3 when he expressed how he felt that he was already like one sitting in the darkness, like one who was long dead. So within his several requests now for deliverance or rescue, he is remaining focused on his present condition. And that points out to us that the circumstances of David are driving his petitions to God. You see that again in verse 9, when deliverance is directly asked for by David, Delivery from, deliver me from my enemies, O Lord, I have fled you to you for refuge. Now, I think there's something that we should learn from that pattern, something we should learn in regard to our own prayers. We can and we should be specific in what we ask of God, even as we ultimately seek the will of God in regard to his answer. Our circumstances really should drive many of our prayers. If we hunger, we pray for food. If we are full, we give thanks for the plenty we have. If we were ill, we pray for healing. If we are well, we ask that health continue, and again, we give thanks. Whenever we are in any need, physical or spiritual need, we ask that God would meet our need. And then a deliverance from the situation he is in is just one category that David specifically requests of God. It's not the whole of his prayers. We also find now in the text that David also asked of God that he would in essence be more aware, he, David, would be more aware of God's presence in his life as a result of the trust he has placed in God. When in the eighth verse, David asks, God, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for I in you trust. I take that to be a prayer from David asking for a more immediate awareness of God. Quite probably, David's hope would be that the awareness would be enlarged through a deliverance from the enemy. But it could just as easily be a request that he would hear of God's unfailing love, even were the trial to go on. In addition to asking God for deliverance and a sense of God's presence, David also prays in his specific petitions for God's guidance. At the end of verse 8, David asks, Make me know the way I should go. And then in verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. When David is praying, make me know the way I should go, you almost hear in the prayer a tone of desperation. Perhaps you've known that feeling in your life. You faced, you've been faced with some difficulty and you don't know which way to turn. Do I take this job or not? Do I go off to college in a faraway state or do I stay near to home, to my family? There are times when we feel that the results of our decisions might bring about drastically different consequences on our own lives or on the lives of others. Those are the times we should pray for the guidance of God. 
It won't always be that we feel as if we get God's clear direction. God might be working his providence through our troubled, um, troubled mindset. But at other times, he does answer by giving us a peace with the decisions we will make. But I also think that Paul's next words in regard to asking for God's guidance will also often make those times of more desperate decision-making and indecision less frequent. You see, David also prays for God to teach him to do God's will. Oftentimes, the decision-making with which we are faced will not really be a choice between two equal alternatives. Should I tell my parents the truth or should I lie? Should I demand my wife do what I want or should I love her sacrificially? Do I support my employer in some cheating plan he's hatched? Or should I refuse, even knowing that it could cost me my job? The more we know the revealed will of God for the way we are to conduct our lives, and the more we follow God's teaching, the more frequent His guidance in any given situation will be more apparent. And I suggest then that in part, the answer to David's prayer has already been given him by God through the giving of his word. So the prayer, teach me to do your will, O God, includes in my view a request of God to make my heart and my mind more attentive to what you have already given me in the scriptures. But even when the biblical course to follow is debatable in our minds, or perhaps when it is apparent, but still not so easy to follow, Well, then we have a final petition for guidance, and that becomes of even greater importance. In asking for guidance, David also prays, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Even when we rightly know God's will for us, having learned it from our scriptures, we will need the spirit's inward leading to keep us on the straight and narrow and level path. I haven't yet touched upon the 11th and 12th verses but let me now also give you a short explanation of them. In many ways, these last two verses merely continue the petitions of the prayer, asking God specifically for rescue and deliverance. Here in these last two verses, David prays, preserve my life, bring my soul out of trouble, cut off my enemies, destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. But I also ask you now to notice two additional aspects of the petitions found in these last two verses. First, David's petition in verse 11 asks that his prayers be answered by God for the sake of the Lord's name. David doesn't just pray for what David perceives to be for his own good. He wants God to answer for the sake of the glory of the name of the Lord. Every prayer we ever raise to God, even those which are raised seeking some specific good for ourselves, should even more be raised with a hope to see God God and his name be glorified. So we see that in these last two verses. And then secondly, notice as well that now there is a confidence in which David's pray, prays. He doesn't pray at the ending, please cut off my enemies. He prays, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. And David can pray with such certainty 
because he knows this world is not all there is. And we can pray with certainty. Despite our own unrighteousness, we can know and pray with certainty that God will in his faithfulness and righteousness by his mercies deliver us from all the evils of this world so that our enemies and our adversaries, the adversaries of our soul will certainly be cut off if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. There again, this really is a appalling psalm, isn't it? Though we are unrighteous sinners, every prayer of the psalm will be answered with a yes and an amen because by faith we have been united to Jesus Christ. I would just ask that you see this psalm, my friends, perhaps as a pattern for your own prayers. I ask that you pray confessing your sin before the Lord, praying that he would then answer your prayer with faithfulness, righteousness, and of course, mercy. And then with dealing with your trials, reflect and meditate upon the work and the wonders of God. That will actually help you to thirst more for the Lord and you will search him out even as you live in this world, feeling if you are, like you are that person living in a parched land. I also suggest that we learn from this psalm that we can be specific in what we ask of God, even as we ultimately seek the will of God in regard to his answer. In part, our circumstances really should drive much of the content of our prayers. So pray for God's deliverance from trials. Pray for awareness of his constant presence. Pray for his guidance, guidance given by, uh, by him when our decision-making seems most difficult. Guidance by that firm planting of his word within us. And guidance by his spirit to clarify his word or to help us when temptation to sin makes it hard to adhere to God's design. Also then, pray for the glory of God's name as he answers our prayers. And do pray, Christian, with certainty. Pray knowing that God in his faithfulness and his righteousness will always by his mercies deliver us out of the evils of this world. And in your prayers and in this psalm, be pointed to your need for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.